John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Entry 1411.SS0604, certificate number 39950. War rugs. The Afghan carpet industry has been around for centuries, and most of them who we have learned it from their parents. It's currently the largest Afghan export, so it's, it's, it's absolutely crucial to the economy in terms of generating income as well. There are over a hundred types of wool available that is used in carpets. Have you ever been to Afghanistan? I have never been to Afghanistan. It seems like the type of thing that one of us would have done. Well, I mean, there's a whole generation of American men in many states who have been to Afghanistan. It's probably like the country most Americans have been to after Mexico and Iraq. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Canada's uh, in fourth. There was a brief period there where I felt like maybe I would go to Afghanistan before 9-11. There was sort of a peaceful interregnum where it seemed like you could walk the Silk Road, which was a type of thing that I once dreamt I would do. Well, before the whole Soviet-slash-Taliban-slash-U.S. morass in Afghanistan, it was a very romantic part of the world for a lot of the West. You know, it's the, the, the Hindu Kush in Kipling novels. It's Kim and the man who would be king and, uh, as you say, the Silk Road. It seem, and it's the fact that it's, you know, kind of landlocked and mountainous makes it seem like a nice rugged destination for a certain kind of old-timey Anglophile kid. Yeah, well, you know, the reason that was such a, a uh, romantic Kipling-esque place was that the British were engaged in a variety of, like... Um, Skullduggery? Co colonial wars there. Uh, they got, you know, the... Mountains in that region were the natural extent of British India. Mm -hmm. And so the British were constantly trying to refine that border and pacify Afghanistan, and they continually failed. They had their little British hats handed to them three separate occasions. But it was, it was a place where a generation of Victorian British army people made their bones or lost their bones. I guess, yeah, I shouldn't give the impression that the morass started with the Soviet invasion because Europe's had a, some fingers in the 
Afghani pie for a long time. Well, Afghanistan. I'm, I'm sure the pie is some kind of a handheld meat pie. I don't. I don't know what they eat in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, they do play the game, don't they? Play the game where they ride around on horses and uh, hit a human head with a with hammers or whatever. That came later. I think that the original game, as shown in the great film Rocky, th- not Rocky, uh, Rambo Three. <laughs> do you get Rocky Three, Rocky Three, and Rambo Three confused? I do. I love when Rambo goes to Afghanistan and has to fight Mr. T. <laughs> uh, Rambo Three, where they're playing the game on horseback, where they're uh, they're using a sheep as the object, as a, uh, effectively the ball, right? They're that just you, whacking. Is it a dead sheep? No, it's a dead sheep. But they like you grab it and try and you're riding along, holding a dead sheep by the leg, and you're I think trying to throw it into a basket or something. But then someone else come, the other team comes up and grabs the sheep out of your hand. It's much more, you know, the a, a ball game like polo is a metaphor. The game is a metaphor. This is much closer to the probably the original sport of give me that sheep. <laughs> the sport is called buskashi, which literally means goat pulling in yeah. Persian. So it, it essentially is give me that sheep. Give me that sheep. And I feel like that's what polo is effectively. It's just we've turned the sheep into a ball and put hammers on in between. Pretty much all of our pastimes started out with a sheep. Like before there was reading, people would just sit and hold a sheep open and kind of stare at it. <laughs> and eventually... <laughs> Chase the sheep. There's uh, there's Hide from the Sheep. Another and, great game. And I've never seen Rambo 3. So when does Thunderlips come out? Oh, Thunderlips. You know, well, uh, so Rambo 3 is a great example of a mid-80s American sort of agitprop like propaganda film, but at the time the uh, Mujahideen were our uh, allies, and it was the Soviet Union that we were fighting a proxy war against. So, is, is, are there clips of Rambo being like Osama bin Laden is the greatest hero in military history? I mean, effectively, he's wearing one of those little boiled wool hats and is uh, mobbed up with the her- heroic rebels against the Soviet. Um, helicopters and invading troops. I, we've gotten a lot of feedback from uh, listeners that I pronounce the word Soviet with an L, Soviet. And have you decided to stop? Uh, there's nothing I can do about it. Oh, you're going to, I mean, you're leaning in to, all, to the Soviets. All, all of my pronunciations are, are uh, I don't feel like I'm in command of them anymore. So the Soviets. You're just a vessel. <laughs> I am. I am. I'm, I'm, uh, the prophet of the true word of God, which is to put extra letters into everything and mess up all the Latin endings, the Latin pluralizations. So this is, um, you know, this is a, a historical record, John, and not your little war movie podcast. Whatever. But uh, you guys have not done Rambo 3 on your other show? No, not yet. It must have seemed like a fun twist for Stallone to be like, our Vietnam is Vietnam, but their Vietnam is Afghanistan. So it must have seemed like a very contemporary reversal to have Rambo in Afghanistan. It really was. And, and uh, you know, the, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. You just did it again. I did it again. Uh, was a real, um, we, we'd been fighting proxy wars with the USSR throughout the 20th century mm-hmm. in Angola and in Egypt and all these different places where we were effectively fighting America versus Russia battles, but where the risk of... Right, the great innovation of no troops. Right. Well, and the risk of uh, nuclear contention was off the table because we could test our new jet planes in little conflicts between Egypt and Israel 
but there wasn't a risk really to us of that escalating into a major conflict. And everybody kind of knows nobody's going to destroy a planet over Angola, right? Well, that's the, right, the presumption. But when uh, when Russia invaded Afghanistan, I'm sorry, what uh, the USSR, not Russia, um, what Russia has always lacked is a um, a warm water southern port that doesn't have to go through the Bosphorus, right? Their only southern ports are on the Black Out Sea. the Black Sea. And so they were always... They're constipated. They're the, a right. country without an excretory system. That's right. They, they can't get out into the, the wider ocean. They've got, you know how it is when there's all this stuff you want to pump into a nice, uh, clean ocean of water. Uh, potty. And you, you, can't, <laughs> you can't do it. Right. You there's can go, just Mongolia cock blocking you. And even up in there in the Baltic Sea, right, they just have a very narrow little area there between uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, and Finland. They just have a kind of a small outlet. And so although they have a giant Pacific coast, there was no sort of warm water way into the Arabian Sea or to, to the south. And we should explain to the future that this was a time when there was actually sea ice in the Arctic. For, right. much, for much or all of the year, something right. something you guys have never seen. Right. Our future listeners are like, why don't they just go over the, the short route, over the pole? In their day, doggy paddling is called polar bear paddling because that's all polar bears do. But this was an area, if you think about, between Russia and the south. This was, this was back to Catherine the Great. Um, but the USSR had assimilated Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and... Now they came up against this wall of Iran and Afghanistan. But what's the game plan, man? Afghanistan's landlocked. Did it, did nobody tell them? It is, but then they can, you know, and the and they were. Are they uh, like Pakistan's next baby? Well, and Pakistan I mean, was part of the. Both Afghanistan and Pakistan were part of the greater USSR sphere, sphere of influence. Right. That's another proxy war you get between India and Pakistan. Uh, but there was a tremendous. Afghani resistance. So they had a puppet government in there for a long time, but there was uh, there was this resistance movement. There was this, I mean, Afghanistan has long been called the graveyard of empires. So everybody kind of tries to come through here and, and beat them up. And they mount this significant resistance in this impassable mountain terrain. And no matter your technological advantage or your numerical superiority, you crash up against this impassable range and it's it's the end of you and the hills are full of sturdy crafty freedom fighters freedom fighters who are living in, living in caves in Tora Bora and so in 1947 right the there was a a partition between India and Pakistan the greater British India uh, encompassed both of those territories and half of it the northwestern half was largely Muslim and the and then the majority of India was Hindu and, you know, Gandhi dreamed that this could be one country, that they could, they could get past the Hindu-Muslim resentments. Right. But it turned out after, after the partition in 47, that was not possible. And there was a giant then uh, diaspora of Muslims headed, you know, who had been living in India for generations, headed to the West into newly formed Pakistan and Hindus headed east. And interestingly, also uh, some Muslims headed east because Bangladesh at the time was part of Pakistan. Isn't that, and, and so called just, East Pakistan. You just have a big island of India in the middle. So, you know, Muslims had two options depending on, you know, which, which goal line they were closest to. Yeah, which, do you want the mountain one or do you want the, the sort of swampy one? Do you want the graveyard of empires or the tornado alley? 
<laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, we, we were just talking about the tornadoes of Bangladesh. So they're both graveyards of something. Um, so the uh, Mujahideen fighting this uh, heroic war against the Russians, you know, the, the invasion of Afghanistan in 1980 was the reason that Carter, Jimmy Carter. Uh, sure, there's a generation of angry American archers and uh, uh, steeplechasers. Right, he canceled the 1980 Olympics for the United States. They never got to go to the Moscow Olympics. And then the Russians, tit for tat, didn't come to our 1984 Olympics, which is right about when uh, Sylvester Stallone gave them the, the, you know, the titty twister. It is kind of a funny thing that, you know, that through this accident of um, geopolitics and o Olympic uh, city awarding, you know, Russia and the United States were each hosting their first Summer Olympics. Back uh, to back. Russia ever, the U.S. in quite a while. And, you know, Carter maybe would not have, Carter would not have boycotted an Olympics anywhere but Moscow, right? Yeah, and I think it was part of his, um, he felt vulnerable at being, uh, he felt politically vulnerable being called a, uh, a pacifist or not hard enough on uh, the Soviet Union because this was an era of, you know, of brinksmanship and the Republican Party and Ronald Reagan uh, in particular were campaigning against Jimmy Carter as... The, the, we're the cowboys now. Right, and they're the, they're the peaceniks. Now, in fact, it turns out Jimmy Carter was a, was a real hawk. He was the first president to reform the whole continuity of government program. This was all kind of happening in secret. He was the first president to actually test all that stuff. Uh, there was an incident where they were sitting in the, the White House talking about like what, what would happen in the event of a nuclear war. And I think Brzezinski, his national security advisor, mm -hmm. said, okay, let's go now. And all the military advisors were like, what? And he said, now. We just got a message that, the, that they've launched. Let's go. And they were like, uh, uh, what? And he was like, let's go. And so all of a sudden, frantically, these guys are running around the White House calling the, you know, and the helicopters coming to take the president away. And the point was. Did anybody know Brzezinski was going to do this? No. He was just like, it just popped into his head. And he Call was like, an audible. let's go. And uh, Classics of big new. And so, the, you know, cars are driving all over and, you know, mass hysteria, dogs and cats sleeping together. But in fact, they, um, you know, they more or less pulled it off. But Carter was the first one to actually do this in all, in all the post-war history. But this, um, you know, the American response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan very much was resonating uh, against our recent, mm, let's call it defeat in Vietnam. It was uh, a tie. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Kevin Klein in A Fish Called Wanda. Uh, because, uh, because there was no question that the Soviet Union was supporting North Vietnam with money and material. And we were still quite bruised from it. And this was our opportunity for a little bit of get back. And in fact, it was a similar situation, not in the jungle, in the high desert, but a more or less technologically primitive local resistance against, you know, the powerhouse of the early 80s Soviet Union, arguably at the height of their military power. And once the Cold War ended, I think we saw that, you know, just how many similarities there were, you know, just a whole generation of haunted Russian veterans, just yeah. as we had in this country. And, uh, you know, just what it did to the national character, the idea that your vaunted army could just 
get into an unwinnable war. A war in, of in attrition. A, in a small Asian country that was unpopular and had to be propped up by generations of leaders, finally some who didn't even vote for it, and what it did to the country as well, you know, uh, between one and two civilians killed in Vietnam, similar numbers in Afghanistan, you know, a whole country decimated by uh, somebody else's proxy war. Yeah, and and in this case, the CIA in particular was really deeply enmeshed with the Mujahideen. Bless the, you. Thank you. <laughs> The, the Russians had the advantage with North Vietnam of actually having quite a bit uh, more proximity, uh, and the Chinese as well. You mean as opposed to the U.S. that had to ship everything across an ocean, or? Yeah, yeah, right. We, we were not local to Central Asia, uh, but we made really close friends with them and, and were very visible there. They were using brand new American rocket launchers, so there the heightened hostilities of the eighties. I mean, there was the Soviets had a, a lot of cause to feel like that we were propping up the rebels. Mm -hmm. And then after the end of the war, we all rejoiced after the Russians departed, uh, everyone rejoiced at a new free Afghanistan, which almost immediately became a, a Muslim autocracy. Taliban uh, take over and impose Sharia law. Right. And then everyone knows the story that after the first Gulf War, American troops in Saudi Arabia really offended Osama bin Laden. And from his little redoubt there in Taliban Afghanistan, he mounted what became uh, an endless war against terror. It's a funny thing about, uh, you know, that, that kind of paternal feeling about Saudi Arabia as the, you know, the center of, you know, something we don't see. You know, we just think of it, eh, it's oil-rich desert, you know. The idea that that would be somebody's Jerusalem or Vatican. Right. And that, you know, any foreign troops anywhere inside the border is a desert, you know, essentially is like marching through a cathedral. Yeah. So it's hard for us to understand. Yeah. Particularly since the holiest cities in Saudi Arabia and in the Muslim world are all over on the West Coast of Saudi Arabia, on the Red Sea, and our troops and most of our involvement in Saudi Arabia is way over on the East Coast near Kuwait and Qatar. Uh, but still, you're right. It's a defilement of the of the whole region. Do you feel like it's a pretext? Like really, Osama knows that they're hundreds of miles away from anything good. Saudi Arabia is huge. Saudi Arabia is much bigger than Alaska. It's big. Hey, uh, easy. <laughs> Careful sorry. there, mister. Size isn't everything. <laughs> uh, you know, is there really the sense that the modern borders of Saudi Arabia mean anything at all? Or is this, is this really just... Um, U.S. boots on the ground anywhere in the in the Muslim world, in the future caliphate would have been just as offensive. I don't know. I don't know because I am not a um, Muslim fanatic. It's, I don't think it's a case of a lot of people don't know this about you. You are not a Islamist fanatic. I'm not, but also, I mean, if you think about the the their comparable feelings about Jerusalem, obviously, like people are fighting over and have been for centuries mm -hmm. over the occupation of the Temple Mount. And its symbolic value 
even in our day as you know what it can be the capital of and what embassies can be there can still right. ignite firestorms today a they, thousand years after crusades and probably even when futurelings are listening even though it, there's a one universe government that is completely peaceful jerusalem is still partitioned between 86 <laughs> yeah, religious groups yeah. here we are in methodist jerusalem yeah, but the, uh, the samaritans there are only four of them left but they're living there on top of a tower and there's like one christian science reading room in the middle <laughs> That's, that's all the Mary Baker Eddy gets. Yeah, I really loved the idea of Jerusalem as an open city, like an internationalist city, a most icely, if you will. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, a wretched hive of scum and villainy? But no one, no, no one in the international community seemed to take me up on that. They don't want your lively bazaar. No, these are not the Torahs you're looking for. <laughs> when it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout um so another thing that happened within afghanistan during this period was an evolution in the way that what we call oriental rugs were being produced. Are we still saying oriental rugs? So oriental rug is, uh, we would not say an oriental person, but oriental as a description of a rug is still the preferred nomenclature. When I was in college, the flavors of cup and noodle in the supermarket were like chicken, pork, and oriental. Yeah. Which I guess implies that, you know, one kind contains chicken and the other kind contains orientals. (laughs) Do they still have oriental cup and noodle? Maybe not. Uh, it's sort of like, um, what, you know, we still use the terms East and West when we talk about civilizations, even, I guess, or cultures. Sure. I guess the problem with Orient is it defines it as to the East of what, you know, like there are people that, you know, East Asia has historically thought itself as being in the middle of the world. And we're like, nope, you're to the East of us. And that's what we call you. Um, yeah. And I mean... You could say that that's what that's how it's described in the English language, and so there's an argument, I guess, to be made that in English you wouldn't put Asia in the center of the of the map. There is still Oriental flavor top ramen, by the way. Is there really in our day? Yeah, it's I guess it's like a fossil a fossil word, like um, which happens a lot with these kind of um no longer well, acceptable or sensitive ethnic words. Like I think you can still say Negro spiritual. And remember, there's a that population of of um of indigenous people. Right. We, uh, we, ta- we, we talked about the Negritos of the Negritos. Southeast Asia. That's, That's true. Right. So, and I think in, in, a, in large part, it's a, a part of speech that the word Oriental, when you're describing a carpet is you're describing it as characteristic. It's an adjective characteristic of, whereas it's a um, small O it's a small O right. Rather than a large O. 
But oriental carpets are in and of themselves sort of a misnomer in that you don't think of Morocco or even Kazakhstan necessarily as the Orient, or at least anymore. Sure. The uh, usage of that word changed a lot during World War II when the Orient was really solidified as this area, this sort of opium war, um, Southeast Asia and particularly Pacific Asia. China and Japan, and because just because that's the military theater. Right. I see. Uh, but Oriental carpets, as we think of them, are actually produced in this kind of enormous and majority Muslim uh, stripe that starts in Morocco, which is sort of famous for their carpets. Morocco touches the Atlantic, not not what you would call the Orient. Right. It's like to, part of it goes west of Spain, I think. All the way across Algeria, Libya, through the Middle East, um, Turkey, and then this sort of Caspian area, uh, Iran, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan. Carpet's so important in Turkmenistan that they actually put carpet designs on their national flag. Mm -hmm. The flag of Turkmenistan, in addition to the usual stripes and crescent moons and stars and whatever flags have, has a strip of like the five most important carpet gulls, carpet designs from the country. Like that's their bald eagle or uh, Eiffel Tower or British crown, you know, like the peak of their culture is... These carpets. A carpet design. And those actually have just been recently granted UNESCO uh, historic, like, preservation status. Like it's a World Heritage Site? It's a World Heritage Site, their their carpet industry. And then carpets continue uh, through Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan all the way into that Western China as part of, culturally, part of their patrimony. They are no longer uh, means of transportation, though. They, you don't see a lot of the flying carpets anymore. No, that's a really problematic reference. Those, is that right? Is that Orientalist? No, I don't think so. I think <laughs> you can get away with it. Actually, I don't know if that's legit or not. Like, is that a, uh, a European trope that, um, I mean, that or- the East has flying carpets? Or are, are there actual... Legends uh, of... Yeah, Arabian Nights text about this. Or is this all Richard Francis Burton's idea that there would be flying carpets. You know, you referenced it a little bit earlier, the, the, the Orientalism that was sort of popularized by Edward Said mm-hmm. in his book of the same name. Which we should explain to the future is just the idea that there's kind of a, a fun, exotic version of Asia in the Western mind that actually services real Middle Easterners poorly. Per- particularly in the 19th century and early 20th century, this idea of the exotic Orient uh, it was similar to the 18th century idea of Aboriginal people as being noble mm-hmm. and untainted by vice. And so, although they were, and so it was very patronizing and simplified them, but it did it in the way, in the form of celebrating them or lifting them up. Like, oh, look at these beautiful, exotic, um, you know, these. Uh, all the paintings of the time portrayed these harems like arrayed around the feet of a pasha and wasn't that fascinating the, the pasha us. the pasha didn't get a lot of the benefit of the noble uh you know indian chief who's in touch with the land i mean really part of the appeal was and he's got a big curved sword and he'll just <laughs> he'll just cut off your head he doesn't care you know super soup but super exciting titillating oh yeah like right. you know you know boys adventure stuff right but um you know not being praised for any kind of super ethical behavior, maybe, except a weird kind of internal honor we don't understand. True, true. But but I think that honor is a absolutely uh, 
not just exotic, but also exalted. There are certain aspects of it that to a Christian nation would have seemed like, well, like Buddhism or Hinduism, a kind of perhaps alternate Kind of, it's it's wish, it's wish fulfillment in that this guy can have 12 beautiful well, veiled wives and look at these amazing banquets he puts on and you know so it it, it is an admire it you know it's a kind of admiration I remember but reading, kind of a weird distorted one reading uh orientalism in college I absolutely spent a lot of time poring over the illustration on the book cover <laughs> and was like you know as bad as this is I do. I do admire the aesthetic. Look at these domes and these uh, veiled women. Yeah, I think Edward Said is not happy with you spending no. more time on the cover. No, he's he's uh, still mad. And of course, this was also the era. I mean, the Alhambra was visitable in Spain. You, we had access to beautiful Moorish architecture. Yeah, the the and and I think Europe was engaged in millennia of conflict with the um, with invaders from the east. So it wasn't like we were just admiring them from afar. We also were terrified. You're that... admiring them from Jafar? Oh. <laughs> Don't admire him. He's the worst. That's why you get the gold star. <laughs> By the way, magic carpets are legit. They are from real Arabian folktales. They are not a, a Arabian and Persian folktales. They are not a, uh, a Western interpolation. Well, and, and these rugs and uh, carpets were originally very practical items in all of these countries. They were... Uh, How so? Well, I mean, a rug is very practical. Ties the room together. It really ties the room <laughs> together. But you can pile them uh, on top of a frame and make a shelter. Uh, particularly if you're a nomadic people, uh, you roll up the rugs and take them with you. And then ah, you yeah. can unroll them on the desert floor at night and throw them over a, a over some pieces of wood. And all of a sudden you have a pretty comfortable shelter. Uh, easily transportable and easily traded. So it's not just a, what we would think of as a rug, like, uh, you know, something to wipe your shoes on or to change the color of a room. It's actually, you know, it, it's sleeping and maybe sitting on it around a low table or it's a more important uh, even object of furniture, right? Absolutely. And a lot of the, uh, there's a lot of nomadism just naturally in this region. It's a It's a sort of major part of, of how the original Arabians, I mean, until after World War I, most of those were nomadic tribes. I mean, we were nomadic people before agriculture, and guess what? In the Arabian desert, not a lot of reason to sit still. Well, and before agriculture, we were also located, I mean, our, our forebears also come from this area. It's, a, you know, it's the cradle of civilization, literally. That's what I hear. That's what they say. Not the graveyard of empire. Also, the Graveyard of Empire was just from to the right. To, from cradle to grave, <laughs> it's like less than a thousand miles. Uh, and somehow uh, Iran is right in the middle Iran's of Iran's middle this. age. And, when, and we talk about Persian carpets also being a big, you know, that was uh, mm -hmm. maybe maybe even closer to, to the classic carpet, the Persian carpet. The carpets you want to talk about are uh, Baluk, right? They belong to the nomads of Baluchistan. Yeah, Baluchistan, which is one of the tribal areas in Afghanistan. It kind of overlaps. Uh, it's kind of at the where Iran and Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan meet. It's it's uh, along the lines of your Moldavia. It's a historical region that is no longer a political boundary. Well, as these areas, so the the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan was a, a predictably established by the British. And even to this day, there's a lot of dispute in that region. There's a, a tremendous border disputes from between Pakistan and India in Kashmir. Mm -hmm. That's still an armed conflict. 
and but, potentially a nuclear one. But between Afghanistan and Pakistan, that border is not accepted by the Afghanis. So you can imagine that what it does is it pushes a little bit too far into traditional Afghani territory. But carpets were very practical items, and they were also items that were they were very signaling. You could put your your uh, the patterns were encoded with different information about your tribe and who your people were and how the carpets were made. They were exclusive to different regions, and and they became a thing that you would trade or barter or use as, um, well, uh, in the absence of flags, even use as right, it's a, identifiers. It's a national symbol. But as the colonial expansion happened, and 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 across the Silk Road, I mean, this was also the crossroads of civilization. It wasn't just that they were being. Wait, invaded. first it was a graveyard. Yep. Then it was a cradle. That's right. It's also a crossroads? That's right. Is the crossroads between the grave and the cradle? The thing is, if you go down to the crossroads and try to catch a ride, <laughs> yeah, you're going to end up in one of those things. I went to the crossroads of civilization and tried to sell my soul to the devil, yeah. and I still cannot play the... Uh, Harmonica? Balalaika? I don't know. What are they, what are they playing over there? Uh, they play the zither? They play, a, they play goats, actually. They, they string, string <laughs> yeah. them up. and I tried to sell my soul to the devil to become a better Buzkashi player. Yeah. It didn't work. It's like a tub bait. But you just got to pull the string, the, the, uh, the gut tighter. So then they became, they became trade items, right? And, and a, a lot of the rug manufacture then was done primarily for export. And as time went on... Discovered by the West probably pretty early. Like, yep. I'm assuming that Dutch and Venetian merchants were like, check out these. These are one million times better than any carpet we have. And you show it off as a sign of your your mercantile wealth. And in particular... It's a middle class thing. A middle class reference to Orientalism. To yes, have an Oriental it's, carpet... It's adventure, too. Yeah, in your Dutch uh, row house is to say that you are a person of the world and it's to, in a way, kind of set the scene of an exotic almost, I mean, it, it references to your, your middle-class house guests, a kind of opium soaked harem that, uh, that, you, that you only aspire to in, yeah. Rotter, in Rotterdam. Or it might be, you know, it's the scene that says like, Hey, key party tonight. They had no idea that, uh, you know, in our time, their city would be an opium soaked harem. They, you know, that was still centuries away. Yeah. At the time, I think it was still largely Lutheran. It was or, Lutheran or and Calvinist. Yes. It was all, it was a wooden shoe based economy. <laughs> That's why you needed carpets. You don't want your wooden shoe clicking on the floor. Uh, you know, this was also the time when it was very popular to show maps on your wall. This was the, the, golden age of cartography. And that was a popular form of decor just to show a map of the African coast or the Red Sea or something, because it really does show, you know, this is my interest in the globe. This is perhaps the, my, uh, my mercantile expanse. Yeah. It's a sign of sophistication. Well, and a lot of the motifs, um, evolved over time and it takes about a year to weave even a, a medium-sized oriental carpet in the traditional manner. Um, so they quickly became kind of a thing that as you could weave these and export them and earn money, they became maybe more expensive to the, even the population of people who were making them. It's the kind of thing where like as soon as white people discover quinoa, suddenly that's no longer a cheap thing for Ecuadorians to eat. Right. Now it's organic and... Because they can get a much better price from Whole Foods. Right. So fast forward to the Soviet invasion 
and occupation of Afghanistan. <laughs> During this period, the residents of Baluchistan, uh, the Baluch people, started to incorporate images into their rugs of war material. Grenades, helicopters. Wow, so modern war material. Pistols. Kalashnikovs. And this was not a tradition that went back thousands of years. Um, like would they have even crossed swords or whatever? Or No, they're, they're, it, it evolved sort of in fairly recent times that the motifs would be not just completely geometric, but, but somewhat figurative, um, birds and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, but as the Soviet war progressed, these carpets started to appear that were, that were woven with this military iconography. Grenades and stuff. And the, the theory, there are a lot of theories about war rugs, but the initial theory was that they were, um, designs of resistance meant to communicate to other people in the region, a kind of like a, it was a coded reference to their resistance to the occupation. So the, they were graphical elements that you could look at these rugs and not see helicopters and grenades because you're not expecting it. Right. It, it's a very funny juxtaposition. It would be like seeing hieroglyphics, but the Pharaoh's holding a, an iPad or something, you know, um, because it's this ultimate ancient art form, you know, this kind of timeless looking woven thing. And then suddenly there's a modern Soviet assault rifle right. in the middle of it. Yeah, and and I think that probably to Russian soldiers who were occupying Afghanistan, they thought that that was pretty funny too. Oh, it's a souvenir industry. And so they started buying these rugs. And then the rugs started to be manufactured specifically for a Russian soldier. Because your, soldier your buddy comes home and like, hey, Sergei got a rug. We got to get one of those rugs like Sergei got. Right, because think of how, think of the Orientalism in that. It's like this strange memento of of their war. And it's got military iconography, the, can, the kind of thing that young military guys will, will put on their biceps. Well, sure. This is, this is a thing where you get back and you're, and all of a sudden your apartment that used to have just Lamborghini posters on it <laughs> now also has this totally rad war rug. And so the war, the iconography kind of blew up at this time. And so, go ahead. If you've lived anywhere near an army base, you know how much the economy is based around the guys on the base, not just the dealers selling orange Corvettes or whatever, but also just even the clubs and the diners. And, and I grew up uh, near uh, an overseas army base in South Korea. And it becomes this weird thing where there becomes a kind of a weird border area of economy that's only aimed at like 20-something GIs away from home for the first time buying the dumbest stuff. Well, you think about the satin jacket with an embroidered map of Korea That's on the exactly back. what I was going to say. A members-only jacket with like Korea in kind of, you know, because amazing embroidery there for low, low labor costs. Right. So the word Korea in some kind of weird old English or Orientalist font and then a map with maybe a tiger. Um, and that was like the nice stuff. That was the, you know, it, it, it gets progressively kitschier. There's definitely the guy calligraphying people's names, mm. but it's not actual calligraphy. It's more like the R is going to be a pagoda with a dragon and the S is a, you, you know, yeah, the kind yeah, of thing, yeah. right? right? The S is a waterfall and, you know, in these bright day glow colors. And then it got even kitschier. There'd be whole stands of... Um, 
you know, just t-shirts with these kind of awful sexualized sayings about the kind of things that the kind of antics that GIs get up to when they, you know, when they got a weekend pass and uh, maybe weirdly explicit references that hopefully even the people making the mugs and the t-shirts didn't understand. It's a crazy kind of shadow industry. And I love the idea that Oriental rugs might be, might have been like the Soviet or Soviet, if you will, equivalent. Mm-hmm. Well, if you, and what's super interesting is that now there's a secondary market, uh, a vintage clothing market for those satin jackets with maps of Korea on them. They are now no longer just a gross thing that a GI brings back, but now a kitsch item for snobs. I didn't know this. So there's snobs going to thrift stores hoping to find one of these vintage. You used to be able to find them all the time in thrift stores, and now they're only in, you know, they're only in vintage stores. So I lived blocks away from thousands of these, and I didn't know that it was essentially, you know, vinyl gold. And probably even those weirdly sexual explicit T-shirts, if they're from the 1970s and 80s, some kid somewhere in Los Angeles is wearing it right now. But the secondary like, market... Oh, if, if only I had kept in my basement just hundreds of T-shirts that say, make her sleep in the wet spot, I, yeah. I'd, be a, I'd be a billionaire now. Well, but the, you can go crazy with that. You could have bought a 59 Les Paul in 1976 <laughs> for what at the time would have been an extraordinary $2,000. And, you know, now it's worth $600,000. That's what you would do if you went back in time. You wouldn't actually buy, uh, you wouldn't buy IBM stock. You would just get a guitar. No, I would definitely buy IBM stock. <laughs> I, I think if you just put your money in the stock market, it would do just fine. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. But there there became then uh, within the Russian, because Russians are not uh, strangers to irony, and Russian soldiers we're sure. the- <laughs> they've read Chekhov. They love, That's right. They love that kind of brittle, tragicomic uh, approach to life. It's deeply in there. <laughs> uh, and so these rugs started to feature giant AK-47 Kalashnikov rifles and... So it was subtle and then it got... Not subtle. Because, you know, it's 20-year-old GIs. And <laughs> then they became... Then there was a, an entire genre of these carpets that just had a giant map of Afghanistan with Russian tanks all headed back to Russia. So they're buying stuff about their own defeat. Yeah. And, and with, you know, like rocket launchers and, and stuff like on the, actually on the map, literally on the map. And, and there, there is a theory and it's being sort of put forth by this guy, Kevin uh, Sudaith or Sudaith, who was the American guy who really decided that war rugs were, um, that he he was going to popularize these things as art 
works. Is he a scholar, or did he bring him into his gallery and make a ton of money? He's an he's an American sort of. He's doing it from an art and archaeological or anthropological, rather standpoint. He's a New Yorker. He has a theory that, in fact, there were there was an artist here in the United States, or I'm sorry, he was an Italian artist that actually contracted rug makers in uh, in this region to make maps for him. Uh, in textiles as part of his production of his own art mm. and his uh, geographical vocabulary had an influence on the rug makers as who had been doing this contract work as they started to make map rugs. Themselves. So they start to turn more into risk boards just because of this Italian guy. Right. I'm sure there are a bunch of, so thanks to this American guy, now there's upper West side apartments that, uh, that have these, very he, exotic items. He has and has been popularizing them for a long time. And in fact, I dated a girl about 10 years ago uh, in New York who worked for him. And part of her job was to, I mean, they were exporting these rugs and finding them. And, and there's a long history of them since, um, you know, in the second half of the 20th century. So you can now find early versions of this where tanks are very geometric and very, and hardly visible as tanks stylized all the way up until these rugs that have Kalashnikovs on them. And then after the Russians were gone and the Americans became the number one market. Yes. They must've been so happy. New invaders to buy our rugs. Yeah. And they started actually having English words on them. And, uh, for a long time celebrating the defeat of the Russians, this was before, the United States became embroiled in a war, but but English speakers and Western tourists were there and really like lolling over these um, Kalishnikov. And it seems that the works. Taliban turned a blind eye, even though this is the kind of artistic expression that they would be blowing up in statue form, but so the, they the, let the cottage industry go, I the guess. The Taliban is ex was always extremely against um, representative images in art. Sure. Uh, and like Except you say- Kalashnikov. But they allowed this um, because, yeah, it was a, it was earning money. And then when the Americans got into a war there, again, the rugs started to change. And in fact, there's an entire genre of them called the 9-11 rugs. I saw the 9-11 rugs. Where they're twin towers exploding and jet planes and... The funny thing is they're not that different than some kitschy art you could buy down on Canal Street, you know, like just never forget stuff. But hand-woven but hand into these right. kind of beautiful wool rugs. And they're kind of weirdly, like, they don't say, yay, 9-11, but there's something celebratory about seeing these detailed depictions of the crashes. Well, and a, and a major theme of them is a band across the middle that has an Afghani flag on one side, an American flag on the other, and then the dove of peace in the middle. But it's a, <laughs> it's a pretty graphic depiction of the Twin Towers, including hand-stitched little people jumping off the roof no. of the World Trade Center in the rug. I saw one that had, you know, plane impacts marked with, with lettering saying second plane hits tower, like almost as if you're hearing the CNN guy yeah. speaking th at you through the rug, like it's a comic panel. And this would, this rug would be a very different thing in Afghanistan than it is on the, uh, you know, on Canal Street. And Kevin Sudith, Sudith or Sudith, you have, I, you I have really, no idea. I have no idea. It's S-U-D-E-I-T-H. What would you say? Sudeth. Mm, Sudeth? Maybe? Yeah, let's say Kevin Sudeth. Um, he would often set up a stall 
uh, at these kind of at a, at a bazaar displaying these rugs, and it was a real controversy in New York City because people would walk by double take and be really triggered by seeing these rugs like what are you doing and he he would say well this is an art an art form and and you know i'm appreciating them as this is objects. the ancient art of uh woven 9-11 kitsch right the funny thing is in afghanistan most people probably many people would not have even understood the references to 9-11 you know in rural afghanistan although that was a big enough event uh because someone had to explain why suddenly smart bombs were raining down on them from B-52s. Uh, so I think there was a little bit of maybe, and maybe some of these rugs were explanatory. Like, see? This is why the B-52s. Yeah. All of a sudden, all these guys in beards are driving around in four-wheel drive like uh, Jeeps. <laughs> Mark Wahlberg is now here. Shooting everything. Mark Wahlberg and drones, and it's all because of this. Well, and, and speaking of drones, now the latest iteration of these rugs are just pictures of drones and they are, and they look like, and they're drones of different sizes. Because that's the face of warfare to a civilian now. And it looks like drones as you would see them from the ground, big ones, small ones, drones everywhere. And they're spooky um, because, right, it's no longer tanks and grenades. It's just these drones on a background of blue. It's kind of come full circle to the birds or whatever. Uh-huh. Except, you know, right. a deadly kind of bird. Different kind of bird. So these rugs now do live primarily in a secondary market. Um, you can buy them, if you will believe this, uh, you can buy them at overstock.com <laughs> because people import them kind of in bulk and then find at their rug gallery or whatever that they aren't, that these like twin tower rugs aren't really selling. It doesn't match the drapes. And so, uh, so now overstock.com has, has actually quite an interesting selection. Uh, they're not the finest quality and the collector's market, like for everything, um, you're not going to buy just any satin jacket with a map of Korea. You want the earliest ones, the, the ones from the fifties. And that's true of these rugs too. Well, a lot of these artisanal wares from the developing world, once you get a mass audience, you start to get in trouble with child and forced labor. And I wonder if that's an issue here. There's, there. I mean, this is a traditional handicraft that was always made by women and children, and there's no... Like, a- I, like iPods. Like iPods, right. And there's no aspect, there are no uh, labor laws, let's say, in the mountains of Afghanistan. Um, and so, yeah, as it becomes more popular, people in the West then have, if you're looking for something to throw your hands up about, uh, the fact that these are, and often in the designs themselves you see a childlike uh, idea of what a tank is. Mm. And you can look at that a lot of different ways. You can look at it as um, a way of transforming a tank into a graphic. But there are some that you look at and it just looks like a child's drawing. It's like a refrigerator drawing. And those are the ones that are the most sort of, uh, that give you pause when you imagine that this is a seven-year-old who's making who's this rug. A, and he's seen a lot of tanks. And seen a lot of tanks and this is what they look like. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised you don't have a, you don't have a 9-11 rug here, John. Well, in, uh, a, in our, in, in the bunker. So a lot of them are a prayer rug size. They're not very big, mm. two foot by three foot or, uh, uh three by four. And they're, kind of more suitable as wall hangings. I did have a rug from this region that was actually not a woven rug, but a, but boiled wool that was covered with graphic, uh, stitched animals 
birds and dogs and sort of herd animals. Um, and I still have that. That's around. I'll show that to you later. But in fact, in preparation for this show, I went on eBay, where there are also dozens of these rugs, and, uh, and bid on one. And that auction closes in five hours. That's thousands of years ago to our listeners, John. They don't. Right. But I was just outbid right before I started the show. Oh. I saw that someone else had bid over mine. And now I have a decision to make whether this is one that matters to me that I, that I, because this is a good sized one. There are, there are rugs that are seven by five. And that's, I think the kind I would want. I'd, I'd like one as a, as a item of home decor and not just a, you know, th there is a decor question. Is it, is it a nine eleven rug? No, oh. I, I find the ones with maps and, uh, AK 40, uh, the AK 47 ones are pretty cool, but the sure. ones with maps and the ones with the twin towers, those seem sort of like things that you thought were cool. And then, I mean, for like a, in your call, in your dorm next to your beanbag. When I, when I first made money as a musician, it was at a time when you could still buy a watercolor by Adolf Hitler for uh, $5,000. Oh yeah. He was still turning them out in Argentina. <laughs> still turning them out. Right. But, like, These are all Paraguayan jungle settings now. What the hell? He did so many of them during the, during his period when he was a frustrated and failed artist. Mm. And there is such a small market for something that was painted by Hitler. And I was intrigued just by the, by the idea that you could own a thing like that. Not as a thing I would like, it's not like I would celebrate it, but that I, that you could just for money. I mean, right now, Audrey Hepburn's ballet slippers are on sale at Christie's. Um, and someone is going to buy Audrey Hepburn's slippers. I bet they smell. And put them in a glass case in their living room. Even I Audrey Hepburn smelled when she did ballet. But when I thought more and more about actually owning a watercolor by Hitler, like it's not a thing you would put on the wall. I wouldn't put it on the wall. And if I didn't, if it was in a closet somewhere, it would haunt me that it was in my house, right? And it was a thing that the initial idea of it was like, oh, wow. I'll buy a it's so transgressive a watercolor by Hitler. Whoa. But then I'm not going to put that on the wall. Like what kind of conversation piece is that? Hey, welcome to my house. Oh, you like that? You That's just, by Hitler. Yeah, <laughs> you don't have to say it. It's a lovely watercolor. It's a conversation piece about these flowers. Even now, I'm just grateful that I didn't do it. And I think now there are enough creeps in the world that Hitler watercolors are too expensive to buy. So maybe I missed out on that. You were saved from uh, the better angels of your nature. Yeah. And I feel the same way about a 9-11 rug. Not a thing I want in the house. Well, say what you will about 9-11. It really tied our foreign policy together. And that concludes War Rugs. Entry 1411.SS0604, certificate number 39950, in the omnibus. Speaking of things, purchases that will not age well, John and I were avid social media users in our day and were available at all times with quips and reactions on the news. Love to hear the offended quips and reactions from random drive-by irritants. I'm sure that somewhere in the future, there will be some, like, octopus that collects Hitler watercolors that's super bummed that I cast any aspersions on them at all. I mean, I suppose history... He should he, be grateful you kept the, you know, the, you were keeping the market alive. Right. This may, be the, this may be the thing that he's like, you know who's got those. <laughs> I mean, I think it, now if you had a watercolor by 
Genghis Khan or a watercolor by Charlemagne, uh, no one would sure. remember their no terrible crimes. Like, Charlemagne killed so many Saracens or right. whatever. Like right. they would just be like, really the Charlemagne? Yeah. So at some point it becomes really the Hitler? Yeah, there's going to be an octopus in the future that's like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with this. This He's just a historical figure. It's just the time to buy a watercolor by some guy named Dave Hitler. And then you can yeah. tell people, yeah, this is by Hitler. Well, when in the in the 80s, it was really popular in the early 90s to have paintings by Gacy. You could you could right. write John Wayne Gacy, and he would paint you a clown. I knew a, I knew a couple of different punk rockers that very transgressively had serial killer artwork. I wanted to have Charles Manson um, just scrape a pentagram into my forehead. And luckily, I thought twice. Yeah, well, that you know, visiting day is is only <laughs> once a year with with Chuck. And they don't let him have anything sharp. Uh, our social media accounts, speaking of the Manson family, <laughs> our social media accounts were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick on Twitter and in John's case, Instagram. This project was represented at Omnibus Project across a plethora of of platforms: uh, Instagram, Twitter. A plethora. Facebook. A single plethora, <laughs> not multiple plethora. Right. Uh, we were available via email to uh, interested parties suggesting addenda and uh, errata at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. There was even a forum of like-minded scholars who collected their findings on a Facebook group called Futurelings. Listeners... From our vantage point in your distant past, when there are still tribes, when the world is still divided into nations, where we don't all speak a single language and are not all either mochaccina-colored, all of us, or have learned to appreciate the rainbow of peoples. It'll be the end of Orientalism when we're all part of a global world government and we're all mochaccina-colored. I mean, there's no, it, it, there's no excitement of the Baluchistani nomads you've never heard of when... You know, everybody is just an Earthian. True, but there mu- there might be uh, Oceanism, where beings from the land, oxygen-breathing beings from the land, are somehow discriminatory against beings from the sea. Or, who are, or space. Or space, right? Sure. So, uh, who it'll, knows? It'll just be space Orientalism. It'll be from uh, the eastern part of the galaxy. There actually is an old Star Trek where they're trying to reference uh, Jim Crow, and they say... It's a backward planet in the southern part of the galaxy. Like the oh. galaxy like the galaxy has a south. What, what, <laughs> what exactly is the magnetic north pole of it, the galaxy? It's down there by the Martin Luther King <laughs> asteroid band. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, who, it's, I guess it depends on whether you are a uh, Hobbesian or a, um, Calvinian. a, a Calvinian, uh, whether or not you think that we will ever in space and time eradicate prejudice. Um, I guess it's a it's it's the liberal slash conservative question across all millennia. The Star Trek idea is you do it, but only so you can smugly tut tut at the other less enlightened planets you come across that still have war and uh, shortages and uh, prejudices. Right in the future, there there will always be virtue signaling. Uh, but we hope and pray that the catastrophe that wipes us out and produces that future will never come. But if the worst does come soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if your gods allow, your octopus gods, because uh, we would never presume to disparage your 
lords. Get on your your uh, coral and anemone prayer mats uh-huh. to worship your eldritch underwater gods. Uh-huh. Uh, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.